Welcome to Taking Notes with NextGen Venture Partners, where we have interesting conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators in the NextGen investing ecosystem. I'm your host, Dan Mindis. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. My guest today is Ahmad Akund, founder and CEO of Mercury. Uh, Mercury is a new bank geared towards startups. Uh, it's uh, tech heavy, it's for uh, tech companies. It's uh, built to address many of the pain points that uh, entrepreneurs face in dealing with their banks, uh, as well as providing new tools that traditional banks probably aren't even conceiving of today. Ahmad talks about you know, why he started this company, how it's benefiting his large and, and growing client base of startups who choose to bank with him, some of the challenges along the way for building a bank virtually from scratch. And I think it's a really interesting in, uh, window into how entrepreneurs start something that at least shows the you know, very good signals of being quite successful over time. So I think you'll enjoy the conversation with Ahmad. And without further ado, here it is. Ahmad Akund, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So why don't you start with what Mercury is? Yes, Mercury, we're building a bank for startups. Uh, we basically give you a checking account, a debit card, and a savings account. It's all online. You can sign up within kind of 10 minutes, and we have a bank account for you within 24 hours. Uh, any U.S. business can sign up. We have a lot of kind of seed stage startups using us, but we also have kind of bigger companies and smaller companies, and we're fairly, fairly flexible and just kind of delivering a great kind of banking experience to any company. So there are plenty of banks in the world. How do you differentiate? Yeah, so you know we have the unique pleasure of being pretty much the only online, only good digital bank in the U.S. for businesses right now. I don't think that'll last forever, but most other banks you have to go in in person into a branch and kind of sit around for two or three hours. Or if you want to sign up for like you know SVB or First Republic, you have to have like a magic email address. It can still take you a few weeks to sign up. So, so our initial experience is much nicer, and then it kind of goes from there. You know, we're building a bank to be product first with like modern customer service. So you know you you have an intercom, you have kind of. Uh, intelligent people who can answer your questions, the product works, it gives you graphs. Uh, there's a bunch of things that we spent a lot of time getting right. You can make a payment to an existing recipient in like three clicks and it's very intuitive. So there's just these little things that you know, banks haven't had to innovate. They're not really technology companies, they don't really have engineering teams mostly. So they've, uh, especially in the US, really kind of left a bunch of holes and we spent kind of a year and a half building a really good product and the kind of product that we as kind of product-minded entrepreneurs wanted to use and that's really resonated with people. When you describe what you're building, I think about my own experience and, and you're addressing a number of the pain points that we feel with, with our, our banking relationships. One of the things that you said that's not necessarily a pain, addressing a pain point, but a potential new value add is you mentioned graphs. Now, I wouldn't even expect my bank to you know, give me much of anything in the way of any kind of analysis or you know, data beyond just you know, a statement of money coming in and money coming out. So talk a little bit about any, any analytics, any graphs, that, what are you providing your customers along those lines? Yeah, I mean, people just have like, such low expectation of the banks. <laughs> so the idea and the reason we wanted to build Mercury is like, uh, yeah, my previous company, there's a, I always felt like 
it was hard to be on top of finances. Uh, you know, the way most kind of smaller companies work, they don't have a CFO or financial controller, so they get a spreadsheet, like an Excel spreadsheet from bookkeeper, you know, at the end of the month, plus 15 days. And that's really the one holistic snapshot of their finances, uh, both on the revenue and cost side. And that always seemed like really crazy to me that I'm running this like tech company, all of this, all of my data is basically online, whether it's on Stripe or PayPal or Square, uh, all my costs are online, whether it's payroll like Gusto or AWS costs. Uh, so all of this data is available and really should be real time, yet I'm waiting for this Excel spreadsheet to really understand my business. So that was a core part of what we want to solve. I don't think we're done yet, but you know, all the money, revenue, and costs, it's all flowing through the bank. You should be able to surface data based on that, whether it's like, oh, you know, you just had a 10K cost from you know, this vendor, that, like, is this something you expected? Or whether it's like, hey, your revenue seems to be down by 20% from this kind of source. Like, you know, maybe you should check that out. So kind of giving you some of it's anomaly detection like that. Some of it's just kind of giving you nice insights and letting you break it down by different vendors or by different categories on the graph. Yeah, so that's, yeah, we haven't built all of that. It took a lot to just get a really good bank account built, uh, but that's definitely like something that I want to build in the next kind of six to 12 months. Uh, but we have some of it already, like we can show you graphs and we let you search transactions really easily. So, you know, I imagine just the technical aspect of building, you know, just a, a bank account that works is non-trivial. You know, when I, when I think about your business, I would think the regulatory aspect would potentially be the biggest hurdle. Um, so how have you handled that? Yeah, I mean, it's from an external perspective and definitely from my perspective when I was first starting this, it's the bit that you're like, oh, that sounds really hard. You know, thankfully, it's a, it's definitely easier now than it was even when we started in 2017 and much easier than it was, like, let's say, in 2015. Uh, the main way that this is easier is there's a lot more kind of partner banks that are willing to work with fintech companies. Uh, so, you know, over, basically any fintech there is, whether it's like Stripe or Square or PayPal, they're all partnered with banks and banks are kind of like, you know, basically in the US, anything to do with lending or payments or depository has to go through a bank. And banks have over time kind of become more open to working with fintechs in order to kind of tap into the innovation and allow you to uh, yeah, from their perspective, they they get to be innovative by partnering, and from your perspective, you get to kind of I don't think borrow is a good word, but basically partner with them. So the money never touches Mercury; uh, it goes straight into a partner bank, which is a uh, mostly a bank kind of based in Tennessee called Evolve Bank and Trust. And from that, massively simplifies kind of the regulatory burden around this. Just, yeah, it's obviously a lot more complicated than a just a pure software SaaS business. Like we have a, you know, we have a compliance management system. We have people that specialize in that. We have lawyers that uh, think about that, and we have to, you know, anything to do with our product, we often have to do a legal review before we can even say certain things. So it's it's there is like this kind of additional complexity built into it, but it's yeah, it's much simpler than like running a full stack bank. That makes sense. And the way I see what you're doing is you're kind of building the bank of the future and, and, and with a, a focus on startups. Where do you see it five years from now, maybe even 10 years from now? 
Yeah, it's always kind of tricky thinking about things you know that far out, especially when you're kind of six months into the launch. I feel yeah, on a general level, my ambition is unbounded. <laughs> There's a bunch of ways for us to go. I think for the next year or two, we will still be very startup focused and we can easily you know we're very much at the kind of start of the journey there and there's a lot more tools we can build and there's a lot more growth we can get there i think we could easily be 50x bigger uh, just doing startups i think over time there's two obvious ways to grow one is to grow bigger as our startups get bigger and we build better tools for bigger companies so you know whether it's series a or b startups or whether it's just like kind of mid-market 200 300 person companies that's one path to take the other path to take is to go broader in terms of you know now we've done startups let's do every e-commerce company let's do every app developer let's do every you know all the other kind of digital native businesses and there's a lot of those I think it's between those two other like the two obvious kind of branches to do and that would probably keep us busy for five years but we'll see I mean the other there's lots of ways to expand this right like there's like allowing non-US businesses uh, which is a whole other kind of regulatory and like product complexity involved there but there's some kind of synergies there there's potentially doing kind of non-businesses or things that are borderline businesses whether it's like kind of prosumers like gig economy workers uh, we could, i could keep going on and on and some of these things might be done by other companies better uh and one thing that's like funny about banking which isn't always obvious in like from the outside is that even like relatively small niches in in banking are like these huge like billion to ten billion dollar opportunities like if you just did startups and did it really well and nailed that category it would probably be a ten billion dollar company yeah, when I when I once looked at the and maybe it was right before we were investing in, in you guys, I looked at the market cap of Silicon Valley Bank and I was astounded by by how yeah. large you know a, a bank can be just focused on startups. Yeah, I mean like banks in the U.S. are worth four point five trillion dollars. It's just insane. And Silicon Valley Bank's only through thirteen billion. So yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So you mentioned that you launched about six months ago. Where do things stand today? Yes, you know, the reception's been much better than expected in some ways. I mean, I think we, you know, product-wise, we've we basically delivered what, what I consider like the first MVP kind of version. Uh, but we've grown pretty consistently, more than 40% a month uh, since our launch for the last six months, which has been nice. And, you know, we've done very little kind of sales and marketing. So, and the quality of the startups and, you know, the amount of people that say good things about us whether it's you know just directly emailing us saying like you know can't i've been waiting for this for years or whether it's tweeting about it it's just been kind of fun to see like this reception and this you know a ton to do and i'm gonna you know for a, for a long time after the launch we didn't have any kind of customer support people so it was just me and my co-founder doing it now we have a couple and we you know we, i feel like we're finally in a position where we can kind of go back to innovating rather than just kind of dealing with like all of these kind of deluge of customers which is kind of a fun place to be back in so there's a lot of kind of interesting things coming in the near future well as an investor we're certainly thrilled that you do have a deluge of customers i, I could imagine those got those companies or potential customers saying hey this you know this sounds good right i'd, I'd love a you know a serial entrepreneur being the one to build my bank rather than what i have today 
but you know, am I really going to trust my money with, uh, with a company that's you know launched six months ago? So how do you overcome that challenge and that objection? Yeah, I think that's probably like the biggest um, impediment to even more growth, right? Uh, like I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and like, it, yeah, almost everyone's like, yes, I hate my bank, like they charge me weird fees, the products suck, etc. But like, can I trust you guys kind of thing? Uh, and yeah, there's kind of like a boundary in some ways. If you raise less than a million dollars or you have less than a million dollars, you, you tend to have slightly more trust. Partly because you know, where we give you like fully FDIC insured accounts, uh, and that goes up to two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars, and partly because I guess like you're probably a little more worried about your own kind of existential issues uh, rather than like uh, Mercury's. Yeah, a few things we say is like yeah, number one, the money never touches us; it goes straight to our partner bank, and that's a ninety-year-old bank that's like fully kind of regulated and it has you know has all of these rules upon it, and then. Yeah. Secondly, trust is, you know, over time, we'll just have to earn this trust, right? Just, yeah, from the types of things we do and like how transparent we are, like we're trying to build something that like deserves trust. And that's something that like you just have to earn with customers over time. And in general, like, you know, I, sh I, I shouldn't <laughs> kind of talk too badly about our competitors, but like, yeah, they're, this we hear like every six months like an entrepreneur has like some really crazy story about the existing bank uh, whether it's like a weird fee or like you know something's not working uh, and so the other banks are like often losing trust over time in my opinion and so as long as we we do good things by our customers we win trust over time and like it's a it's you know i think it's a game that tips towards us over time do you feel like you're in a position right now to go to a company that's right, call it, that's say it's raised $3 million um, and say you really should use us or are there certain things that have to happen before you think you're a great fit for call it a series A back company? And if so, what are those things that need to happen? Yeah, I mean, there's a few companies that raised more than $10 million using us as their primary bank. So it's a, I don't think like the dollar value is a necessarily indicator of like whether they can or can't use us. I think the... There's like certain products, like mostly around debt that we don't have. So if it's a company that you know needs to take on some level of debt, uh, whether it's like venture debt or credit line, yeah, that's probably like the only true type of company we can't service right now. Apart from that, I would say most types of companies we work pretty well with. Uh, that that makes sense. Now I want to go kind of go back to you to your history, your background. Not, you know, not your first startup, and, and you were also a part-time partner at Y Combinator. You've done a lot of your own you know, early-stage investing. And I'm curious, what do you look for when, in your own investing based on your own you know, entrepreneurial experience? Uh, and then I'm curious how that applied to building Mercury. So, so first, you know, what are the key things that, that you think about when you're doing your own uh, investing in other people's companies? Yeah, so I've, I think my account on investments is now like near 130 or something like that. For me, I mean, it varies over time. I, I think the two most important things for me are market and people. Market-wise, yeah, I like to feel like I understand the market. And I, you know, I tr obviously, I can't understand every market, but I try to apply my own kind of first principle thinking and 
yeah, I've been in business long enough that most like B2B things, which is probably the biggest category I invest in, I have like some understanding of the kind of competitive landscape. But I've also done a lot of healthcare and self-driving vehicles. And kind of the more you do in a certain space, the more you kind of learn about it over time. So that's kind of part one in terms of market. It's just like how big is the market? How, how important is this kind of disruption and innovation in the market? So that's kind of part one. And then on the founder side, I really look for people who, you know, are like, it's hard to like, quantitatively say it but like they're just like very passionate about what they're doing they have like a deep understanding about it ideally they've demonstrated like previous like grit whether it's like this is a second company or whether they've just you know built something cool before like I invested recently in this company where the founders had like in school built like a Hyperloop, one of these kind of Hyperloop train competitors uh, and they'd won like second place in that prize even when they were in school. So just like showing something like where they, you built something before and like shown that, that, that like, you know, just like building a startup is hard, like showing that kind of level of perseverance, et cetera, is like really important. So yeah, those are the two things I measure for mostly. In terms of how that shaped Mercury, I mean, I think the most like important part of it is like I just really, I'm like a bit myopic and boring. I just like entrepreneurs. I like talking to entrepreneurs. I like building for entrepreneurs. So Mercury's been kind of fun just because you know I can. It's fun to like build something for myself and for for people that like I like spending time with and helping. Yeah. So I do think the other. Thing that's been somewhat interesting is I, yeah, being on the other side of Mercury, the first company I built since I started investing. I only started investing mostly in 2016, and it is, uh, you know, now that I've done both sides, it is a little easier to pitch investors when like I know what they're kind of looking for, and like you know, sometimes they ask like question A, but I think they're trying to like get underneath like. You know, some other point B, and then you can kind of see through that. You're like, oh, yeah, you're asking this because you're worried about like competitive pressure or like, you know, uh, some other like thing like that. So you do get, like, I do think it's an unfair advantage if you've done some level of investing and you're an entrepreneur just because you can kind of see through things. And yeah, I tend to be, I remember like, you know, back in 2010 when I was raising for my previous company, I was a lot more nervous about these types of things. But now I'm just like, oh yeah, you know, it's just an investor. It's just a, just another person trying to make a decision. It's like nothing to be nervous about. So that, that kind of stuff, like having that confidence does help. Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly true as, as an investor in startups that there is typically a question behind the question or a, a concern behind the question. Yeah. And I think, yeah, entrepreneurs who can sense what that is are probably more likely to be successful in, in fundraising. C certainly an advantage there. Uh, and, and speaking of fundraising, you were able to raise a significant seed round from some top tier investors on not much more than a concept. You mentioned you, know, you started in 2017, you launched in 2019. Not surprising, right? It takes a while to build <laughs> a bank. But how did you manage to pull that off, right? That's a that's a tough thing for for most entrepreneurs to do, even ones that have been successful before, to to bring in multi millions on you know a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, I mean, you know, this uh, like investing, like both both from an entrepreneur's perspective and an investor's perspective, like investing is about like risks, right? Like, as the uh, the reason that 
a company can 10x is because you're taking on some level of risk, right? So I think understanding that as an entrepreneur is like, hey, what are the risks on the table and how can I de-risk those risks? Obviously, like when you're building a bank, there's no way to have traction or like a full product, right? Like that's just not on the table. Like, the, like at the end of the day, like a live product with traction is the, is the most de-risk you can be. So... I knew that wasn't necessarily on the table, but I wanted to obviously de-risk it as much as possible. Um, so although, you know, it felt maybe like that there was only a PowerPoint, I, I, you know, before I went to investors, I talked to a bunch of banks and I believe I had two or maybe three kind of, you know, these kind of initial term sheets with banks, which laid out the grounds of like how we would work together. So, so I had proven that like I could, you know, work with the bank that I understood the economics involved there and, you know, I had some of these relationships. So that was one thing that I had de-risked. Um, and then the second thing is I'd already worked with kind of a designer that I knew well. We built, built out the initial kind of concept. The final thing obviously ended up being fairly different from that, but a lot of the things that, yeah, just showing like this is the type of experience we're going to deliver, that was already present. And and I kind of you know already started building the team. So those those were like the three things that I could de-risk, and I think I'd done a reasonable job of de-risking them. I'd also spent like I would say five months talking to like a ton of people and really learning about like how would you go about building Mercury. So it wasn't yeah you know, I came at it with like I could answer any reasonable question on it, and I had a pretty good idea of like what we were going to do to execute it. So. Having said that, like it was definitely like a risk to give me six million dollars, <laughs> uh, and other people, you know, I don't think I could have earned enough trust and respect to do that in before I like you know successfully exited my previous company. So, you know, there's some ideas that are just like do require more capital and time, and uh, and unfortunately, like you have to have some level of track record to execute them, but. But at the same time, like if you do have some level of track record, it's kind of nicer to go after those ideas because they tend to be, you know, tend to be uniquely suited to you and uh, have like less competition. Uh, so that's kind of that's the trade-off there. Yeah, and I think a lot of what you said just resonated with me. I, I think that the, the key is you use the phrase de-risk uh, several times, and even though you were pre-launch, you know, certainly no kind of demonstrable or traditionally demonstrable traction, you know, the, you know, if you look at what you were building, a key risk is, you know, the kind of the, on the regulatory side and compliance side, and you had had a sufficient number of conversations with banks that you, you know, you can de-risk that. You can say, hey, I, can, I know with some level of confidence I can partner with someone and take on the, all that, that compliance and complexity and regula- regulatory burden or much of it. And then you you also de-risk the build it. Can you build it? And it's like, well, you built some really interesting things before, and so the and the the technical aspects of what you're building today probably are, are you know if anything easier than what you did previously. So you've de-risked that piece of it, and then you can look at the business model and say, well, banking is a really profitable business model. We know how that works. So there actually are a lot of things you can do as an entrepreneur to de-risk. Uh, a business even before you launch it, you know. At the same time, uh, I'm sure you encountered some surprises along the way. What what stand out as some of the biggest surprises? Yeah, I don't know if it's a surprise per se, but I think 
we definitely like probably underestimated like the surface area of a bank product if that makes sense like there's just a there's just a lot of stuff involved right like the onboarding is like pretty complicated it's like a you know 50 field form just like we do like four different payment types and each of those have like different fields of information we have to collect and you know they can succeed and fail and that they do that in different times uh then there's a bank partnership and that has like you know all sorts of kind of api integrations with like again like you have to worry about failures and like all this stuff so it's like as a product you know I'm used to mostly building products that you can kind of get live in three months. Uh, this is just not the case here. It takes, there's just a lot of flows, and if, especially if you want to do, yeah, you kind of have this, like, when you're going after, like, these big incumbents with, in a fairly direct way, you have to, yeah, as a product surface area, you have to build everything they have and then go a little better, right? Uh, or maybe a lot better. So the, the amount of things to build is, like, a lot. And that was... It's, you know, often from the outside, you're like, okay, it's a bank account. It's basically like a integer with with kind of rows that adjust that integer, right? And that's what it feels like from like a reductive level, but from actual like, okay, now you have to build a flow to like make it so you can replace a debit card that's lost, right? That's just like, it's a minor thing, but you have to build that. You have to make it so you can, you know, invite users and different users are going to have different levels of permission okay you have to build that so just like the amount of things to build just to get to like a minimum great product is just a lot of stuff and that's probably been like the i mean i don't know if it surprises the right way but i would say that's been the biggest thing that i probably underestimated i mean the other thing that's been surprising is just you know once you do all of that and build a good enough product just people just really dislike the existing banks and they're just waiting for someone to build a better product. And you can see that with a lot of kind of these challenger banks in the US and Europe that like, you know, these the products are better, but often they're not, yeah, it's, it's hard to like look at something like Monzo and say, oh wow, it just completely changed the game by doing X. Like they, they don't really have, uh, maybe I'm underestimating Monzo, but I don't think they really have like X that's just like way better. It's just everything is just like a better bank experience. And that's kind of similar to Mercury right now. You know, we don't necessarily have like a magic thing that's like just, you know, like this one thing is like so much better because it's cheaper or faster or something. It's just like the whole experience is just much better. So that's probably been like the second surprise that like, you know, just people have enough frustration that like, if you can just build a better bank, that is something that people will come to. Amada Kund, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for listening to Taking Notes with Next Gen Venture Partners. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. To learn more about us or to hear all of our past podcasts, please go to nextgenvp.com. And now for some important disclaimers. The information contained in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any securities. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any performance or projections contained herein may be significantly affected by future events. Any opinions, assumptions, assessments, statements, or the like regarding future events or which are forward-looking constitute only subjective views and beliefs, should not be relied on, and are subject to change due to a variety of factors, including fluctuating market conditions and economic factors.